I'm Adam Strauss. And I'm Jordan Iper, MD. And this is not therapy. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much therapy. It's not therapy, man. Okay, we're live. This is happening. <laughs> we are here. Are we live? Is it, is it is it considered live if it's a podcast? I guess it's well, we're we're live with right. Good good point. Um You're live to me. Yeah, but I was live to you before I hit record. We were already communicating. So um we're recording is really what I should say to be more accurate. We are now recording. How are you? Um how am I? I'm all right. I'm just kind of recovering from my most recent work marathon. Um, I can't remember if I said this last week. My my new sort of setup is doing about once a month, doing four days straight of sixteen hour shifts in the psychiatric emergency room. Um, wow! And I did that uh, earlier. I finished that earlier this week. My most recent little cluster. So so now you're you're off for the next month. Now I'm off for a couple of weeks before I go back nice. and do more work. Yeah. 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 That's intense though. So you 16 at 4 16 hour days in a row in a work environment that we talked about this last week is is certainly not chill. It's not chill. No. It's not chill. It's um it's the it's the opposite of chill at times. Yeah. The the opposite of chill specifically in this case being uh meth addicts. Not Lots a group of, known for not not a group known for their uh, laid backedness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, particularly people who uh, at at the moment of being under the influence of methamphetamine, not known for being laid back, and not and especially you know, I don't want to pass judgment on a on a substance or on a on people who who use a substance and I have sure, a, there's a massive yeah. sampling bias cuz I don't interact with the uh, presumably large numbers of people out there who use methamphetamine and don't wind up being brought against their will to a psychiatric emergency room but I I I find myself interacting with those in acute states of unchillness yeah right <laughs> they're going into the psyche are they're they're not having a uh an easy experience yeah it's not it's not that that's all that i see but maybe a third of the people coming in are coming something related to the to the use and misuse of methamphetamine i would ask so, so that that's the most common presenting precipitating uh episode you know i would say the most meth. I would say like the the average um, patient that I see is someone who def- who has an underlying serious mental illness and also uses methamphetamine. Mm, yeah. uh, so there is a there's a baseline level of potential for disturbance and acute dysregulation, and then and then the crank really tends to push it over the top yeah so it's, it's yeah. complicated because then it's hard because then these folks often wind up not getting they also get labeled by the system as sort of people struggling purely with addiction problems and so they don't wind up getting other forms of help because in our society 
if you struggle with addiction, it's it's sort of labeled as a moral issue and a and a and a matter of bad decision making and poor choices. Less and less, though, it seems like it seems like there has been a, a broad shift over over years and years. Yeah, I think we're doing a better job of that, but but right, it's not often seen as the same. I mean, for that matter, I'd say until fairly recently. Uh, I always never know what term to use because there's no term I love, but let's just go with mental illness. Yeah. Um, that as well was was seen as some sort of personal failing until, uh, not not by everyone, but by a lot of people until fairly recently and still by some people for sure. Yeah, I feel like I still, on a day-to-day basis in the in the minds of providers interacting with folks, you still see a lot more of that attitude than you might expect of the attitude, yeah. the the attitude that this this person's making bad decisions, and it's it's something that I struggle with a lot because on the one hand I do believe that pretty much everyone who struggles with any form of emotional suffering, m- mental unwellness, is someone to whom a bad thing has happened, whether it, that be a bad thing like a. a trauma or uh you know a bad genetic situation Hmm. a bad social situation someone to whom a bad thing has happened who's trying to do their best and so from that perspective there's a part of me that feels like everybody should get all of the support that they need and all of the you know the equivalent basically the social equivalent of like the two loving holding coddling parents that maybe that mm. perhaps they didn't get enough of as a child and there's another part of me that does sometimes see people uh, abdicating a certain degree of autonomy and agency over their own situation and looking for people or medications or um, structures to save them or fix them. And I do fundamentally believe that no matter that, like, despite all the bad stuff that happens to people, we're kind of responsible for dealing with it ourselves. Ultimately, when it comes down to it, you can get all the support in the world, but you are still sort of responsible for for healing yourself in some way and i feel i I feel that that even applies to the psychedelic arena where you can have all the support and in a psychedelic session you can have all the support and you know the best medicine and uh, the best whatever shaman this or that when it comes down to it it's just it's kind of just you and your mind on the mat lying there um and there's no one who can save you there's no one who can ultimately do it for you go that last mile so i i sometimes i find myself feeling like i oscillate between uh this sort of like moralistic libertarianism and this liberalism where i want to like pick everyone up and help them and save them but i don't think there's a a moral dimension to what you're saying where there is an element of personal respect i mean i guess it does it can bleed into morality where it's or at least a a judgment where the the sufferer bears some bears some blame i mean i i think you 
you kind of summed up both views perfectly and and I agree with with, with both of those I, I do think you know in the 12 step world it's it's formulated as we're not responsible for developing OCD in my yeah. case but we're responsible for working on our recovery yeah so and with every addiction I, you know I think no no one chooses to become a meth addict I mean, maybe some people do but I'd imagine for most people it's not oh I want to get hooked on this substance or in my case this addictive um, cognitive and behavioral pattern that is OCD, it's you make a choice in the moment because you're trying to get some sort of relief, some sort of release, some sort of freedom, something. You're trying to feel better in the moment. And as you said, the the underlying cause of that is some sort of something happened genetically, uh, environmentally, a trauma, a loss, and and that's not our responsibility, the stuff that uh, that happened to us. But yeah, yeah, it is it is tricky because it gets really tricky because then also there's this whole concept of powerlessness, which mm-hmm. for me has been key to finding a degree of freedom from OCD. But I, I conceptualize it as I am powerless over my obsessive thoughts, these intrusive obsessive thoughts, and my urges, my compulsions to engage in obsessive behavior. But I believe that I absolutely do have free will as to what I do with those thoughts and those urges. So the reason people with OCD get trapped is for most people what they do is they try to get rid of those thoughts and urges mm-hmm. by think by essentially they try to get rid of the obsessing by reassurance seeking, obsessing more, looking for certainty. And that's a very understandable choice, but uh, it ultimately leads to just getting more trapped. So I know that when I find myself going down the OCD rabbit hole, I do have a choice, and the choice that serves me the best I've learned over you know, trial and, and a great deal of error, and with a lot of support. I've been very lucky, a lot of support from shaman, from psychotherapists, from friends, uh, from people like you who are a little bit of all, all three of those. <laughs> what, what I've learned, though, is, yeah, the choice that serves me the best is almost always always i would say there's always the first choice that always serves me best is acceptance accepting okay there are things happening in my mind and in my body because that's where emotions live that i really don't want to be happening Mm -hmm. but if i try to get rid of them or avoid them i'm just going to be making it worse so the choice to allow to let those thoughts be there to let those unwanted emotions and sensations be there is a choice that serves me but it's a very very difficult choice to make and this is where the powerless thing gets particularly tricky is, you know, you could argue sometimes maybe we don't have the ability to make those choices because the neural pathways are, 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 are so well established for making other choices, for making the choice to pick up the bottle again, literally in the mm-hmm. case of an alcoholic or metaphorically. It's yeah. very, so I do believe we have free will, but I also think, I guess to encapsulate my view, I think it takes tremendous courage to to make choices that may serve us better but entail short-term pain but longer-term freedom. I think that takes a great deal of courage. And I try to be compassionate with myself where sometimes I just don't have the willingness to make that choice, mm-hmm. whether it's OCD or another one of my you know addictions. I use that term broadly. I don't mean substances, but in terms of patterns, addiction, checking my phone too much, whatever. Yeah. Ooh, but also, also, I am aware of, yeah, how lucky I am in that with all the support that I got 
And I mean, that's part of what inspired me to, to share the mushroom cure, to do the show. The mushroom cure was my sense that I was very well taken care of by the universe and wanting to share that kind of fundamentally optimistic and sort of mystical message that, wow, I got so fucking lucky on so many fronts to go through the ringer with OCD and with, you know, crazy experiences, calling 911 on myself, um, you know, having trips that brought me to the brink of suicide and things, uh, things easily could have gone south. And when I look at why they didn't, yeah, it's hard for me to ignore the factor of luck or someone else might say, you know, some order or intelligence in the universe looking out for me. But, but, but even if it's that, it's still luck. So, so, um, I think what I'm trying to drive, and I'm just making sure any casual listeners have, uh, we're, we're shaking them off completely at this point. <laughs> so what I think I'm driving at is, yeah, I think, I, I think there's an element of personal responsibility. I believe in free will, but it certainly helps to have support and resources to make those, to, to support you in making those difficult, if ultimately healthy choices. And a lot of people don't have that. Yeah. Did you have a period of time when you were younger where you viewed your condition as purely an affliction that someone like the medical establishment or a therapist or some or, or something to that effect needed to cure you of? Yes, I I mean and this is sort of the driving force behind the mushroom cure behind the show is this this it's called the mushroom cure and as people know who have seen the show or who know me or listen to this podcast i'm not cured it's the story of me trying to cure my ocd but i call it the mushroom cure because it's the quest for this absolute perfect cure and that's mm -hmm. what i was looking for there was very much this mindset i've said this before probably on the podcast if i take the right dose of the right psychedelic in the right setting then I'm going to get this perfect plus four on the Shulgin scale peak mystical experience uh -huh. trip that is going to cure my OCD. Uh -huh. However, I don't think I really believe that. Be I don't think I really believed it was going to be that simple. I think I was desperate and I needed to have something to hold on to, something to give me hope. But I never viewed the OCD purely as an affliction because it's so integral to me. It's so integral to me. You know, it's not... I was talking once with someone about OCD and I was telling him, telling him about, you know, this kind of this voice in your head that says, okay, you got to do this compulsion. And this person said, well, you know, that kind of sounds more like schizophrenia than OCD. And we talked about it and I realized the distinction. I mean, there's many distinctions and I suppose we could ask a psychiatrist if we knew any of them, but what the actual definition is, but, no, but, but in, in viewing it through that lens, I almost feel like the distinction with OCD is the voice in your head is your own voice. With schizophrenia, people often perceive it, correct me if I'm wrong, as this as 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 an other, as an outside yeah. voice, as something that's directed from outside. With me, the OCD talks to me in my own tone of voice, and that makes it very seductive. And it also makes it that Yeah, I at times it's helpful for me to view the OCD as an entity apart from myself. Mm -hmm. But at other times, I appreciate the reality that it's so deeply integrated into just the way my brain works. Like even now for the first five minutes of this podcast right now, I was adjusting the microphone to get it perfect. You probably, mm -hmm. maybe you noticed I was 
pushing it around to get it exactly positioned so that it's close to my mouth, but that I can lean back in my chair and I can be comfortable. There's nothing obviously pathological about that, but most people probably wouldn't do that. They'd be like, all right, it's good enough, and they would let it go, and, and, and I don't. And that tendency, if I allow it to run rampant, then that, that, that is OCD. Mm -hmm. At a certain point with the microphone, I'm like, all right, it's as good as it's going to get. It's not perfect. I'm going to let it go. Yeah. I don't think you have schizophrenia. Yeah, no, no. I don't, I don't, I don't think I do, too. I, I, I didn't think that was up for debate. But, <laughs> but I do think, you know, like the traditional, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, in like the traditional Freudian, and I'm sure there are many others uh, in the lineage of, of psychotherapy, there's this distinction between neurotic disorders and psychotic disorders yep. and OCD would be considered on the neurotic end of that. But I do think there is an element of psychosis in the sense of delusion of real disconnect from reality. Mm -hmm. Maybe not to the extent of schizophrenia or multiple personality disorder, but there can be a real disconnect where, yeah, you really believe that if you don't make the perfect decision, terrible things are going to happen. If you don't wash your hands, you know, if you don't touch the doorknob 27 times, then your family is going to die. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting in that way where the, uh, the where it falls on the spectrum of neurotic to psychotic it can be a matter of degree. Yeah. And I think this is my this is why I don't like the term mental illness. This is the problem with the DSM. I think they're up to DSM-5, mm -hmm. uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of, of whatever, what, American Psychiatric Association. Where... Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, sure. You didn't say that with a lot of, a lot of confidence. For I, I know. Psychiatric. Yeah. I, don't, I don't love the document. People, <laughs> right. Well, it's, whenever it's referred to in, uh, you know, in the media, <laughs> the, yeah. it's, the DSM is referred to as the Bible of right. mental health diagnosis. <laughs> I always really rejected that. And, and the, one of the fundamental problems is this idea of discrete diagnoses that, okay, yeah. you don't have schizophrenia, you don't have schizophrenia, you cross over line up, oh, now you have schizophrenia. Whereas, yeah, of course, all of this stuff exists on a spectrum, uh, yep. is my view. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's a document that was, my understanding is, is the document that in its inception needed to serve two critical functions in the, in the field of mental health, both of which are critical functions. One, allowing things, forms of suffering to be... To some degree of accuracy or another, categorized discreetly so that they could be researched, and so that you know, so that treatments could be standardized and people could have some sense of. Because before, uh, bef and and this all happened with the DSM two, uh, the DSM, the move to the DSM three, the DSM one and the DSM two were sort of were much more filled with psychoanalytic terminology and uh, and it was in that era one person's diagnosis might bear no resemblance to another person's diagnosis um they were much more just kind of descriptive filled with terms of art and uh, whatever probably the idiosyncrasies of whatever the psychiatrist you happen to be seeing there 
whatever their training was, their psychoanalytic orientation, et cetera. So DSM-3 was, was like an, standardization, essentially. Was There's an attempt no to, to standardize, standardize yeah. so that treatments could be researched and also so that psychiatry could be fit into a, you know, more of the category of a medical specialty with discrete diagnoses that can be billed for, et cetera. So, all, you know, all kind of worthwhile worthwhile endeavors um but i don't think it was ever meant to be a bible it was meant to be yeah. a, a sort of dry uh a, yeah a rather dry document uh intended to help the field meet these pretty discreet um like actuarial needs so i it's not my bible i'll tell you that yeah. much yeah jordan's bible is the quran my bible um, is the bible <laughs> <laughs> I have a copy of the DSM that a friend gave to me. Uh, uh, It was his, I I never bought my own copy. I have a copy that a friend gave to me. It was his extra one. And it has most of the middle pages are cut out for like a, for like a stash box. I've never stashed anything, (laughs) but that's the only copy of the DSM I have. Yeah. It's, uh, but yeah, the, the idea of, I think, though, that is part of the comfort that the DSM has given people, even if it's a false comfort, patients, but also probably doctors, though maybe less so now, this idea that, oh, you have this, you're fit into category 374.1, which is uh, unipolar depression with a, you know, whatever, with with, with a secondary diagnosis, and therefore, yeah. na- so there's the comfort in, oh, now I know what I have, and we have this specific yeah. um prescribed treatment plan that we're going to follow which again can and, serve a purpose for people because because yeah. again it's work <clears throat> yeah if you're trying to evolve from the era where mental illness is a moral failure and a weakness then giving someone a diagnostic medical official sounding label can be very helpful Right. There was, I mean, certainly there was liberation for me in getting the diagnosis of OCD because I had no clue what was going on. I had no yeah. clue what was going on. I was yeah. resistant to the label initially because my symptom presentation isn't the stereotypical hand washing, stove checking form. <laughs> but, but once I sort of, once I accepted it, yeah, it, it, it does help to, to depersonalize it to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think it's an important, yeah. I think it's an important evolutionary step Mm -hmm. it's i i I feel this way about addiction too like it's important to take addiction out of the realm of moral pathology and place it in the realm of medical illness i feel like that's that's been the big push in recent years you drive around the country you see billboards saying like addiction isn't a crime it's a you know it's an illness that needs treatment and that's certainly I definitely agree with that, but I think it's, I think it's one developmental step along a trajectory of understanding addiction, Mm -hmm. but I don't, I don't think it's the end because when you place something squarely in the domain of medical pathology, you strip it of all of its kind of developmental and social influencing factors so you take the onus off of society to try to figure out what it's doing to create all of these 
forms of mental suffering and you allow anyone struggling with with this condition to just be sort of sequestered into this little box of sick person that needs a defined like biomedical treatment to fix them rather than maybe they need what they really need is housing or right something like that you know or or a sense of spiritual connection because i think yeah. that's the other element that you strip away is yeah. is there is for lack of a better term, I would say there could be a spiritual dimension to this stuff, or right? certainly a, 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 an element of self-knowledge that, yeah, has proven to be key for me. And yeah, yeah, it's certainly it's not this. You know, the the psychiatric establishment was very quick in the eighties. We've probably talked about this. You've read Anatomy of an Epidemic, that book by mm-hmm. right Robert Whitaker. Where yeah. it's I won't go into all of it now, but. But suffice to say that there was this real push to me- to essentially bring psychiatry to be te- for psychiatry to to want to be perceived on the same level as say something like oncology or cardiology, where it's it, you know in the where it's no different from any other medical condition, and it's totally impersonal. The idea that um, that this stuff it's a brain disorder. It's not social. It's not it's not spiritual. It's not even personal. It's just, Oh, you have, you know, uh, you, you, you were born with, um, you know, or, or you developed diabetes. This other person develops schizophrenia, you know, and similarly the same way you treat diabetes with, uh, with insulin, you're going to treat your schizophrenia with, you know, with, with some antipsychotic. Yeah. And I think, Again, to a point, there can be some comfort, but it, well, part of the problem is also, uh, I don't want to get into this whole rant, but this whole idea that that mental, quote-unquote mental illnesses, their brain disorders, or it's a chemical imbalance, which is which is bullshit. We, we, we have not found any evidence of chemical imbalance. People who are, have depression do not have lower serotonin with people without depression, which doesn't mean that elevating people's serotonin doesn't help their depression. It can, but that's also the, the metaphor that they use in this book, Anatomy of Epidemic, is it's like saying... Just because you elevate someone's dep- serotonin and their depression gets better, which certainly doesn't always happen, but may happen in some cases, to say then that depression is caused by low serotonin, which again, there's zero evidence of, is like saying, well, if someone is uh, in pain and you give them morphine and their pain goes away, well, pain must be caused by low morphine levels. Yeah. Again, it's just the idea. Just cl- that, yeah. There are clearly, because I think people can get carried away with that with the with the fact that there are many holes in that like what's what's called the monoamine hypothesis Mm -hmm. of uh mental illness which is monoamines are neuromodulatory neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine um that have been heavily implicated are heavily targeted by psychiatric medications and are heavily implicated in uh explanatory mechanisms of mental illness and yeah in the in the 90s when prozac came out this very overly simplified message of like you have low serotonin that's why you have depression you need an antidepressant which will raise your serotonin and it's uh this this sort of one-to-one thing that was used uh, to great effect uh for marketing these drugs right. to, the, to the medical and lay establishments. The fact that that is bullshit and has, you know, has so many holes punched in it. Some people can get carried away with that fact and then use it to 
use it to say that like there are no neurobiological correlates of mm-hmm. mental suffering, which is also baloney because yeah. like obviously these things do happen. These experiences are mediated through the brain. Right, we're, we're, we are biology and chemistry. I mean, yeah. so of course that's effective. <laughs> so there are effect. certainly there are certainly th- things going on on the level of neurobiology when people are depressed, and there's no end of n- not that I'm an expert on it, but there's no end of research finding like demonstrable differences in 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 various correlates between depressed populations and non-depressed populations. But yeah, it's a whole. It's a whole rat's nest. It, but so I, I got to jump in there because my understanding is that there have not been reliable differences found pre-treatment, meaning that if you were to take, I'm oversimplifying this somewhat, but if you were to measure serotonin levels, and I know you can't really measure in-brain serotonin levels, but however they do this, if you were to take you know, 20 people with depression and 20 people, 20 people have been diagnosed with, say, major depressive disorder and 20 people who haven't, and you were to measure serotonin levels of all 40 of those people, there would be no correlation that people with depression, some people diagnosed with depression would have very high serotonin levels, some people diagnosed or not diagnosed with depression would have low serotonin levels, it's all over the place. Yeah. Clear, clearly that changes with treatment and 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 there's implications of that as well but the idea that oh you just have sorry you were just you just lost the genetic lottery and you have naturally low serotonin that that part is is bullshit that that my understanding is that that's bullshit we're getting to a uh another, another thing that's been on my mind today like this morning for some reason i think has been on my mind which is like doubts about whether i'm a good psychiatrist or not because i feel some going through medical training teaches you that you your function as a physician and as a psychiatrist is to be a like a technical expert mm-hmm. and just to fill your brain with as opposed to a psychologist or a, a social worker someone who's more supposed to be yeah as opposed as opposed to yeah, maybe when you're a therapist, there's a there's less emphasis placed on like bio, biological bio, biomedical expertise and more placed on mm-hmm. sort of technical and procedural expertise. And I, in the, I was in, the, in technical and procedural expertise in therapy and conducting yeah, therapy. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm susceptible to that. I don't. I don't. I don't. I certainly know enough to be a competent psychiatrist. Um. But I also, yeah, there are times when I really struggle with this identity of being a psychiatrist, and that includes as it relates to doing this podcast, because um, psychiatrists are supposed to be these like very blank slate, sort of tie-wearing, expertise-dispensing old guys. (laughs) It's kind of the template that I have in my mind. And sometimes I feel like oh, I'm like doing this podcast where I'm like talking, <laughs> talking about, you know, my mom and my neuroses and I don't like, and I haven't like read the research on the, like SSRIs and antidepressants in a while. And I, you know, I kind of like, it's the, this identity of like, what does it mean for me to be a psychiatrist is something that's been on my mind today. 
But I think, because this was our, the first time I met you, I came at you, as I often do whenever I meet a psychiatrist, with, <laughs> with basically, your profession is bullshit, uh, or the whole, like this whole idea of chemical imbalance. I come armed with Robert, which again, a great book. I would recommend it to anyone who's considering or is on medication, uh, Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker, who used to work for the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, to psychiatry's credit, they have embraced him. He gave the keynote address at the APA conference some years ago, but the, the gist of the argument that he makes with epidemiological and uh, uh, neuropsychiatric data is that uh, SSRI antidepressants, earlier antidepressants, antipsychotics, they generally take the conditions that they're supposed to treat and make them worse and make them last longer. That's the gist of it. So... Uh, I kind of came at you with that, and you were and you were like, "Oh yeah, I totally agree." <laughs> but <laughs> did I say that on this I, podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we have that in uh, if we have that on the on the official record. But and your answer was not, "I totally agree." But you 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 were familiar with the book, and yeah. and uh, to be fair, I didn't come at you that quite that aggressively, but. <laughs> This was my view, which is an impassioned view. As someone who was on high-dose yeah. SSRIs for 15 years, I believe they still affect me, not for the better. I don't think there are terrible effects, but there, I do believe I have some lingering negative effects. Um, anyway, and, and yeah. well, and I guess my anger about it is because I feel like it was just, it's been such a, a wrong turn. Not medication, oh, but the idea that, that, that you know, that you should be on these things for a lifetime, and the fact that these medications just typically are not effective for most people. Anyway, to your your point, why are you a psychiatrist? My recollection of that conversation was one reason you went into psychiatry is your interest in working with psychedelics, and this is gonna be, there's a lot more demand for psychiatrists, and there's going to be more opportunities, and are more opportunities, for, I mean, I know so many people it, so many therapists who are now interested or practicing or, you know, with integration, stuff like that, dipping a toe or more than a toe into the water of, let's call it psychedelic medicine. Mm -hmm. And there's fewer psychiatrists and clearly there's a, a need for them because part of, part of what's happening now is, is looking to how do these things work so that they can inform not just how best to use psychedelics, but what do they teach us about the brain in general and what do they teach us about quote-unquote mental illness in general so it felt to me like you chose the psychiatry route not because you were you know an absolute believer in the value of traditional psychiatric medications but because you felt it gave you more flexibility to to probe and explore the questions that you personally find most engaging about human suffering and human potential and psychedelics yeah well put thanks for that why i chose to become a psychiatrist yeah, the mind is so much more interesting than the kidneys, yeah, or the or the lungs or the or the heart. Um, the heart is pretty interesting, though. The heart is very interesting. There's a lot going on there. That the heart and the gut. There's a lot going on that I think shape experience. But but go absolutely. On. But it uh, yeah, I think I decided to be a psychiatrist because I realized there was this whole other area of life that is you know can and probably should fall within the domain of the psychiatrist uh that is outside the realm of biomedicine that is if you're a, if you're a cardiologist no one really cares if you're a spiritual cardiologist or <laughs> yeah. uh people people want you to be a, just like an expert in your yeah. in your subject matter 
and I was drawn to psychiatry kind of in the in a similar way that people are actually drawn to being surgeons in that you have to you're performing a procedure with people you're not just translating information from book to brain to patient but you are to be good at it you have to immerse yourself in the flow of an unfolding experience that you're not necessarily sure which way it's going to go and you have to use your there's something that's more difficult to to put a finger on that you have to tap into in order to be effective in the execution of that procedure so it's it felt a little less wonkish to me than other fields of medicine and and that it that it would invite me to cultivate more different aspects of myself in the service of my job for sure i thought you were saying more why did you go into psychiatry versus becoming a a clinical psychologist say yeah oh yeah yeah why why those additional you know why that why that additional credential well i just i i decided to be a physician before i decided to right be a mental health practitioner so i never that was not a decision i ever confronted i see because i decided to be yeah i decided to be a doctor first um and for a long time i did think i was going to be you're going to be an er doctor yeah like an er just a body a body person a body doc yeah not that you can't like lots of those people then wind up going into functional medicine and holistic medicine and very much embracing the psycho spiritual sides of things um but yeah it's i struggle with this idea that being a doctor is so in our culture it defines so much of your identity yeah um and i struggle with like am i still this am i still just the regular guy that i was who's entitled to have a podcast where he bullshits with his friend and tries to figure out how to have a stable relationship with his girlfriend (laughs) or do i have some responsibility now to be more authoritative more uh yeah like really you've you've genuinely been grappling with that sometimes i grapple with that because there are there are because there's a, a a way of looking at i'm not i don't i'm not performing therapy right now like i don't have any i don't have a private practice right now so this is it's not really an issue but i wonder if one once i'm a, a therapist again would it be weird for a a patient of mine to be listening to this and be like oh man i, I was i can't project my father's stuff all over this schmuck He's- right <laughs> <laughs> I think not. So the reason I was surprised that you were genuinely engaging in this, I wasn't looking at it from the perspective of, oh, what will your patients think? I was looking at it from just the perspective of this that we're doing here together. And clearly, this is about us just being very open and honest and genuine and vulnerable. And part of that is, you know, yeah, you are you are just a schmuck. And I'm just, just a schmuck. schmuck. Just a couple of schmucks trying to f- figure shit out as best we can and stumbling along in the dark most of the time. And yeah struggling with things that everyone struggles with in our own specific ways. So for the podcast, clearly, at least this podcast, there's no obligation, nor do I think it would work if if you were trying to be authoritative. That's not what this is about. But I can see for patients, for sure. For sure. But I also think there, too. I mean, yeah. I, I Well, so the two, the last two therapists I had, one I saw from 
I'd say, what, 2009 to about 2018 and one from 2002 to 2009 or so, you let me into their lives quite a bit mm-hmm. and and would, you know, my most recent therapist, I've, I've mentioned him before here, Michael Feminella out of New York, really brilliant, wonderful, compassionate person whom I love. And is, I remember once I was like, I just, I just, I feel a lot of fear a lot of the time. And he said, welcome to the club. <laughs> and it was a beautiful moment to, to, uh, to, and he's very open. I mean, he's, I would say he's, he, he's a stable person. If I'm going to use a broad term like that, he's, but yeah, he, he's very open about the fact that he experiences moments of intense fear and loss. And in fact, he said, as he gets older, the, those increase because his view is as you get older, you become more aware of your vulnerabilities. Hmm. And, but that the, the compensation for that is you are more open and you can experience more with more vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, he, 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 I never saw him cry. I saw him tear up, but he, he, he cries on a daily basis because that's his, his practice is acceptance. You know, he's really this sort of acceptance ninja where it's all about, and this physical acceptance that he taught me, which is still like the, one of the biggest things that I do on a daily basis. And often for him, when he's doing acceptance, he'll really be able to open up to whatever the loss is. You know, it could be a trivial loss. It could be a big loss and, and tears come. Hmm. For me, the tears are are more rare, um, but the idea of yeah, fully opening up to loss moment by moment, and thereby finding freedom has been the single biggest cornerstone of my ongoing recovery from OCD and from being human, mm. and all my little yeah, the ways I've grappled with that and 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 hurt myself. And do you want do you want to transition to something? Because this this. Uh, did you have more to say about the psychiatry, psychology, your role? Because this is interesting to me too. What we're talking about, this yeah. just brought to mind something more personal. But yeah, yeah no, I'm 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 just thinking about how jealous I am of the capacity to cry daily. Yeah, that yeah. Is, whew, for me, it's the holy grail. Like once a once a month, if I'm super lucky. Well, man, I mean, and this is one way I feel SSRIs really royally fucked me. Yeah. is I did not cry for probably more than a decade, I don't mm. think. Mm-hmm. Not once. Not, yeah. I just was not capable of crying. And, and I think they fucked me, one, because just depriving me of the experience of crying, such a, a really a transcendent experience. And I mean mm-hmm. transcendent, literally, you're transcending whatever, whatever, however you're experiencing reality, crying just shifts it. Laughter does mm-hmm. too, but yeah. not quite as profoundly. So depriving me of that, but also depriving me of, yeah, I think all of the... The softening, the relaxing, the opening up that can lead to growth and healing from crying. Yeah. Were they ever helpful? They were helpful. No, I wouldn't say they lowered my baseline anxiety. Undeniably, yeah. they lowered my baseline anxiety. I'm going to say maybe 20 to 30%, which is significant. So I was yeah. less anxious. <clears throat> but they did not help with the OCD. Maybe I got triggered less because I was less anxious and the more anxious you are, the more you get triggered with OCD and then the more you do OCD, the more anxious you get, it's the vicious cycle. But once I started going down an OCD rabbit hole, I would go all the way to the you know bedrock every single goddamn time on SSRIs or off SSRIs. Mm-hmm. So they were, yeah, they, they were 
in the in the final analysis, I, do, I don't believe they were helpful. I do believe they were harmful. I don't think they were terribly harmful, but but I also feel like, yeah, I, I like you, I can struggle to cry, I can struggle to connect to emotion. I've made a huge amount of progress through a lot of work that I've done over a long period of time now, but I do wonder if that capability to some extent has been reduced permanently. Mm-hmm. Doesn't keep me up at nights, but yeah. I Have you talked to a lot of other people who have that have had that experience with SSRIs the not crying thing seems to be if not universal like more common than not yeah for sure the in terms of long-term effects no I mean who knows you know I mean I do cry now I do cry and but it's it's um well certainly psychedelics uh, I reliably cry on psychedelics yeah not every time but I'd say more often than not no matter whether I'm having a wonderful experience or a difficult experience, there's going to be tears at some point during the psychedelic experience. And that's been one of their great values for me yeah. is being able to experience crying, but also often the insight that then comes from that just in terms of seeing, oh, wow, this thing was really weighing on me and I, I didn't even realize that this loss, I'm, I was really holding it or I was really not holding it, trying to keep it away. Yeah. That's something I just still struggle with so much is the the basic simple mechanism of knowing what is going on inside of you and why you are feeling off and some like I, I and I think I've gotten so much better at that and I was thinking about this recently and I think the reason the reason I have is because I'm so much more connected to my body and aware of what's happening in my body mm-hmm. so like the other was it two nights ago um, I was feeling a lot of anxiety and I really didn't know why, because I generally have been experiencing very, very little anxiety recently. But this was, it was odd. I was at, I was enjoying dinner with the family and outdoor dinner with the nephews and nieces and in-laws and, you know, as we do regularly here since I'm at my parents' place. And usually it's a highlight, but I just kind of, all the, I knew I was anxious first because I kept reaching to touch my phone in my pocket. I wanted to check my phone, which is always mm-hmm. a giveaway that I'm anxious and I want to avoid. And I could not, figure out why and then I later that night I was reflecting and I realized I wouldn't have even known I was anxious five years ago probably like Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't have been aware of it I would have just I I wouldn't have yeah it wouldn't have risen to the level of consciousness but because I am much more connected to what's happening physically when I connect deeply so after that dinner, I went upstairs. I did this sort of these acceptance practices that we've talked about where I really get to the feeling in my body, really tap into that feeling. I don't try to figure it out. I don't try to think about it. I just try to sense in this case, that feeling was in my heart area, which is usually where I experience strong emotions, really sensing the contours in my body of that anxious energy there. And as I did that, it wasn't at that moment, but I did that for maybe 90 seconds or so. And then I came away from that and there was a light bulb moment where it was like, oh, this is why I'm anxious. Mm. This is, and it was something that I hadn't even crossed my mind and it was very clear to me. Mm-hmm. And, and this is something I believe more and more that emotions are very data rich. Mm-hmm. There's information encoded in emotion, in physical sensation. And this I think is another harm SSRIs did to me is by 
blunting my emotions, I cut myself off from this information. Mm-hmm. And I think of emotions as this isn't information that I have to understand intellectually. I don't have to figure out. All I have to do is open up to the sensation as fully and deeply as I can. And I believe, rightly or wrongly, but I believe that I am learning what I need to learn simply by perceiving that sensation. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes there will be a cognitive component, as with the example I just gave, where I'll realize, oh, this is what was going on. But even if I don't know what's going on, I think the only work I have to do when I'm experiencing emotions is just that, experience them. Yeah. And trust that this whole emotional system evolved for a reason, and that I'm going to learn whatever this emotion needs me to learn for my own benefit. Something I've been feeling kind of handicapped by recently, and I think this is uh, especially, I I feel this especially acutely after these stretches of working in the ER for a number of days straight where it's an environment that is just hyper-distracting. There's a million different tasks and stimuli coming at me, which is, to be honest, kind of fun and addictive. It's I, right. I get very... The rush. It's kind of a rush to just be in constant activity for, you know, at times literally constant activity for 16 hours straight and just get through that and you feel like, wow, I, I did it. Um, but it really fragments your attention. And sometimes I think the biggest struggle for me is that I... I will sit down to do sort of what you're describing, try to just kind of meditate and tap into an emotion. And I find, I feel that my mind is too fragmented to stay with it long enough to extract that data to, to, to allow the emotion to sort of blossom into this, yeah, into this light bulb moment, ideally. But the light bulb moments, those, those don't always come for me. Yeah. I believe that the the information is not is not mental that I need to absorb. So uh-huh. maybe maybe the word information would throw people off, but I, I do believe there's information. I do believe that the specific pattern of sensation as it's manifesting in my body, there is that if I can perceive that almost like braille. I mean, it's like I'm I'm in that it's a sense it's a sensory thing. I'm sensing these these. Uh, patterns of tension and relaxation of uh, energy is the I think the best word even though it's such a broad term mm-hmm. I can use that again for me I typically feel it around my heart area and just by sensing it I'm I'm getting the information that I need to get mm-hmm. and then maybe that information will be translated into a thought but but often it's not translated into a thought mm-hmm. often it's just so again this is just an article of faith that I have that this information that there a there's information there and b that information is being absorbed by sensing it. I don't yeah. know if that's actually what's happening, but it feels. It yeah, that's that's what I believe. Yeah, and I think what, this is a process that psychedelics are very helpful in teaching people because I think the the in the absence of psychedelics that the that process can feel very slow. Yeah, of diving into a somatic emotional and physical experience and then uh, having it resolve into some sort of clarity, whether that's like, yeah, a a specific thought, like a cognitive clarity or um, just a a resolution of the tension. Practicing that in uh, normal waking life, I feel like can be very frustrating and, and painstaking. But in 
uh, when one is coached through it in the context of a, a psychedelic session or just comes to it uh, on their own, it can be it can unfold in so many times and in uh, with such obvious cause and effect relationship of like oh yeah i observed the emotion i watched it change i felt better doing that yeah um that the, it can really it can really build muscle memory yeah and that that's that's been my experience with psychedelics. So I've talked about this many times, I'm sure, on this podcast and in other podcasts and conferences. And the single biggest way psychedelics have transformed my life have has been connecting me to my body and very specifically giving me the ability to sense emotions as they arise in my body yeah. in a way that I just couldn't when I was sober. And as you just put it very well, um, sort of doing that over many trips doing that that is generalized that ability is generalized to when i'm not tripping yeah and that that's changed my life hugely i've been thinking a decent amount recently about the culture we are currently living in and the fight that the culture and our surroundings put up to keep us away from our bodies and just wonder like i don't have a point of reference because i'm a millennial but <laughs> like what was it like what, what was it like 30 years ago when you didn't have this device in your pocket constantly asking you to leave your body f for your mind? Yeah, I think th I was, so I was always very, you know, in my mind that was, that predated technology for me. But by necessity, there were, there were stretches of time where, at least I'd be in my mind instead of in my phone, which is almost another level of absorption or abstraction from physical reality. So yeah, walking down the street in New York or being on the subway and just having nothing other than your own thoughts, but part of your experience, probably a little bit more of your experience might have been in your body. But for me, yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I was trapped in this maelstrom of my mind from a very, a very early age. Yeah. Trapped, but also liberated by it because I have, you know, this uh, pretty vivid imagination and I could go into these flights of fant fantasy that could be very pleasurable and very inspiring to me from a very, very early age. So it was a refuge, but it also, my mind became, uh, could become a way to avoid reality. And then eventually it became this, this, you know, OCD, um, battlefield for me. So how does adding the phone to that, change the experience yeah i think it's just it feels like everyone is shifting maybe not everyone but it feels like there's a general shift where people are realizing how catastrophic phones can be so i'm pretty aware of it now and one of the ways i gauge how i'm generally doing is how much am i how much phone addiction am i engaging in and mm -hmm. I've been engaging in very little recently, but I remember you and I had talked a few months ago and I was struggling more. And one way I knew I was struggling is I was just on my phone constantly. Mm. So so not having that, yeah, it, it, things were, I, I think it was easier to be present without this, this pull, this thing there, you know, literally at our fingertips all the time. Yeah. This uh, escape hatch. Yeah, because that's, I think how it plays on 
my emotions too. If I'm in a good place, I don't know that the phone will necessarily pull me out of that. But if I'm in a not so good place, the phone is the perfect escape hatch and the perfect way to perpetuate feelings of disconnection from self and hypervigilance on various incoming, you know, like streams of data, whether it be the news or just like constantly texting with people and, and then it becomes this self-fulfilling thing where you feel like, Oh, if only I'm on top of my email inbox and on top of my, and, and yeah, have like gotten to the end of the internet at, by the end of the day, then I'll <laughs> have, have control and it becomes harder and harder to trust that you're okay. Uh, yeah. that it's okay to, to just be with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I'm dealing, so I had a pretty heavy experience last night, which I have a feeling we won't get to today and that's okay. But, but what I saw is at a certain point I was really going to my phone and it wasn't making me feel better. It was making me feel, I mean, to me, the phone is almost a form of OCD or any other addiction where you do this, it's this thing you do to feel better, but it actually makes you feel worse, which in turn makes you do more of the thing. The more I check my phone, the worse I feel, the worse I feel, the more I want to check my phone. Yeah. And I knew I was going down that rabbit hole last night and like yeah just stupid stupid crazy shit like i'd be like all right i'm done with my phone i put it down and literally 15 seconds later i'd pick it back up again yeah and finally it was just all right i have to actually just turn it off see anything good on there though dude (laughs) so much good shit (laughs) (laughs) no it's uh yeah it's it's so i i think i think most people spend most certainly in our society are spend most of their time in their minds and i think that predated phones but i think the yeah. phones the, the phone exacerbates that it makes it makes it worse by just giving you yeah this perfect ready-made escape hatch that can take you anywhere in the universe but ultimately doesn't take you anywhere yeah i find it really exacerbates this particular neurosis that i have which is that I, I think I, fa- I I sort of live my life imagining that there's like a panel of judges grading me, yeah. <laughs> uh, grading me on my performance. <laughs> and I think that having the internet right there all the time, it brings that closer. It brings that closer to my experience. Not that I'm even like panel of judges, meaning like, um, meaning like you did that well, you didn't do that well, or is it not moral even, or is not it- in terms of my day-to-day experience but in terms of i imagine that there's a a right way to be living and a and a wrong way is this moral or is this more like optimizing like i think it's more optimizing and doing things it's activity it's it's accomplishments yeah Yeah, it's optimizing within a day it's uh, yeah a certain amount of i don't know career accomplishment or something it's this idea I, 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 this idea I have that if I just want to, if I just decided to like tend a garden for the rest of my life and, you know, and, and care for the people around me, be a loving family member, a loving community member to those I interacted with, that that wouldn't be good enough that I'm supposed to, um, yeah, that I'm supposed to do, I think it's just, I, you know, I, 
it's inherited from the culture. It's inherited from all of these four-year educational programs I've applied to and been uh, and where my fitness has been evaluated in terms of a resume. And so I still, I still kind of have. It's really hard for me to shake this resume-based approach to life. My life. Yeah. Stop worrying about my life resume. Even though I want to honor the fact that um, I do want to create and contribute to the world, and I, you know, I think it is important to, that there be people in the world who want to interact with it and try to shape it and improve the lives of people around them. And maybe that's not my path in this lifetime to just work on a garden. Um, but I also don't want to live life as though someone's looking at my resume every day. I, well, and this is one, one area where I think phones do contribute for sure, because we have, we have hard numerical data on how other people are doing. How many likes did this person get on this post? How many triathlons did they run last year? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did they get how many late night TV spots for other comics? We can very much track how other people's resumes are looking in comparison to our own. But and my phone edition is kind of pathetic because I don't even really do social media. It's more like I just check my email all the time to see if I'm, if there's something I need to do. And then if there's something you need to do, is it like, good, I have a discrete, specific task that I have to do that I can knock out and get a feeling of accomplishment? I think that's over? part of it, yeah. I think that's yeah. part of it. So the solution to that is just don't answer your emails. Have like 37,000 unanswered emails has been my approach so that then you don't check your email because the potential little momentary dopamine hit of having something come in is outweighed by the terror you feel of all these. I think that's the only so way. That is the life hack. I think I think you should start teaching a seminar on being how to be atrocious at email. As I, I block, I'm, yeah. yeah I There's, but... Yeah, I um well that that that's a little different. What I can relate to is this idea of certainly comparing myself to other people and wanting to get credit is a big thing. And huh. it, wanting to I had this was my last ayahuasca trip in fact. I think it was my last ayahuasca trip. This was which has been over a year ago now where I was um it wasn't my last one, but it, it was this this was a particular journey not at Niue Round Peru, where you and I both went at different times, but in, in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Mm. And I'd made a the rookie special, mistake. The, the part of Greenpoint that <laughs> is a special autonomous zone annexed by the, the country of Peru. Yeah. <laughs> Which there might as well be one but, at this point. <laughs> make no mistake, this is federally legal. <laughs> but I was, it's, yeah, it's gotten sawed in the open. And I'm still getting emails from places, even during COVID, running ceremonies. Um, <laughs> It's medicine, man. It's medicine, of course. It'll cure COVID. <laughs> so, but this was a particular ceremony where, you know, one of my optimizing things has, that's been challenging with ayahuasca and all psychedelics is food intake before the journey because I don't want to be too hungry, but if I have too much food in my stomach, it drastically shapes the journey. And the more I work with psychedelics, the more I err on the side of fasting because it just makes such a huge difference physically, emotionally, in every way. Yeah. Anyway, Oh, I remember what the issue was. This is I'm never I'm never going to do shit like this again. I feel like post pandemic, I'm seeing how insanely I lived my life in New York. It was a Saturday night. I had done five or six stand up shows that night, running from show to show to show, and then rushing into an Uber and getting to the the 
you know, the yoga studio where this ayahuasca <laughs> ceremony was taking place, running in, literally running there. Anyway, I didn't want to be hungry on stage, so I'd eaten before, and I'd eaten a little bit too much. So this whole ayahuasca ceremony <laughs> is about my tummy. <laughs> about Adam has a tummy ache, and I want to throw up, but I can't throw up, and I'm just fucking uncomfortable, and I'm an idiot for... I didn't really beat myself up, but I was like, yeah, you know this, man. You can't, <laughs> you can't have it all. You can't do five or six shows and have the right amount of food in your stomach so you don't yeah. get hungry on stage. And Anyway... But what I will say is I was really, despite feeling really nauseous, I was showing up. And what I mean by that is I was in Zazen posture. I was like, I was showing up like a, like a fucking warrior, you know, in my mind, I was sitting up straight. I was really tuning into the music. I was opening up to the physical discomfort. I, I was there mm. and I had a moment where I was like, oh man, I hope uh, I won't say his name, but the, the shaman, um, I hope he notices like that I'm like, you know, despite my distress, my physical distress, I hope like I hope I hope he notices that I'm really like I'm here just like cuz other people in this particular ceremony were losing their shit, were freaking <laughs> out a little bit, and I'm like a fucking rock just sitting at the edge of my mat, zazen posture just showing up. And then I realize like I, I always want someone to give me credit. I always want to I always want and I think that I that may be part of why I became a performer. Yeah. It's not enough to do something. I want someone else to, to notice it and praise me for it and mm. validate me for it. And then I had the thought, like, there's no one, there's no one watching, man. Yeah. There's, there's no one watching. No, no one is giving you credit for anything. Like yeah. if you, the, that is just, that is a, a, a complete uh, solipsistic cul-de-sac that's not going to, if, if you want... Like just appreciate yourself for you're yeah. you're doing the best you can uh, under these somewhat gastrointestinally challenging circumstances, and maybe some merit accrues to you in some karmic sense, or maybe I'm learning important things, or maybe you know what I just I shouldn't have had that fried chicken at three p.m. and this whole <laughs> oh, ceremony is going to be a bust. <laughs> terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> I don't know if I literally had fried chicken, but I, I had some heavy food at like three. So. Yeah. So that's that is for me bringing this back. Um, yeah, one of the very negative aspects of phones is it can it can it can play into this desire for validation and comparison to other people. Oh, that's how we got there. From yeah, I don't even know. <laughs> that's the thing about phones is that they'll make you <laughs> I feel like the, eat a double quarter pounder and every, then go into an ayahuasca ceremony. <laughs> right. Every every subject somehow leads to some ayahuasca war story from one or the other of us. <laughs> well, We're I can say I've had, I, and <laughs> I've, I've had plenty of ayahuasca ceremonies where I did everything perfect uh, in terms of gastrointestinal preparation and still... Uh, the ceremony was exclusively given over to me, to me worrying about the fact that my tummy was aching, and and I, and I did not get through it uh, in zazen like warrior posture. I was, yeah, you see, the shaman doesn't respect you as much as he respects fl me. Flopping around on the mat like a gutted fish, hoping <laughs> hoping that somebody would fix me. No, I mean yeah. that going going back to, yeah, what I was saying before about that that paradox of like you can it's really good to get help in life and support but ultimately you're kind of out there on your own i've learned that nowhere more directly than in the context of a psychedelic ceremony where you can have 
you can have the world's best shaman doing the world's most potent shamanic interventions on you but ultimately there ain't nobody who can take away that tummy ache except (laughs) except for you and uh god up there with the beards on the cloud (laughs) sky dad other than you and sky dad we're each locked into our own experience and this is like you know this is sort of the the i think the source of wonder and the source of terror of existence is that we're all having we're we're somehow sharing experience yet we're all having our own unique experience and 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 yeah, no one can experience your experience for you. Yeah, thank God. But also, it's it's terrifying because there is this this ultimate cosmic loneliness at that level of yeah. looking at reality. I don't yeah. think that's the final analysis, but Ut- utterly and terrifyingly alone. And that becomes very evident in these difficult psychedelic experiences for me as well, and it, particularly in ceremony when there's other people around. And yeah, I had another ayahuasca journey where it really hit where i was like oh this is this is getting heavy well okay thank god i really trust the shaman yeah and then i was like what they can't he can't do anything for you man he can't do like you you got these thoughts are are yours alone there is it's important to be said though that a lot of people i think because ayahuasca is sort of the main conduit into supported work with psychedelics it's the right most now. accessible one. It's the yeah, most accessible sure. that, that people are experiencing in this in this still prohibition era in which we speak. I think that a lot of people still aren't getting the support that they need. Like in the research in the research environment in the underground psychedelic world, people are getting one on one attention or in research, mm-hmm. two therapists, one participant. And you know, that's a lot more support than is available in a 12-person ayahuasca ceremony in a yoga studio in Greenpoint. You have someone with you focused on you the whole time. And that I, I think a lot of people do deserve that, at least especially for the first couple go-arounds when they're doing the heaviest lifting around, you know, cl- clearing up traumas and whatnot. Yeah, and it's a different type of support, right? Because with ayahuasca, I mean, with tr- traditional Shipibo ceremonies they're not sitting there talking to you about what you're experiencing yeah. they're they're yeah. singing that's yeah. that's their intervention is they're singing yeah, yeah. They, they may be doing some light touching <laughs> they may spray some agua de florida on you yeah but you're not having someone there talking you through it and yeah i mean i i personally have not found a great deal of value from one-on-one guided journeys but i do think not that i'm necessarily done with that for the future but i i do think i i could see there being a great deal of value yeah. there yeah. For many people in many situations where having that continuous personalized support could be absolutely yeah. could be invaluable. But you can still find yourself in that same place where you're like and I think I think it's a confrontation with a very infantile frustration and a, and it's a very infantile and important developmental stage to go through realizing oh there's a person here supporting fully supporting me one-on-one as a as a mother would a colicky infant but Hmm. god damn it it's still ultimately it's still just me and my tummy (laughs) yeah you're right right mom can't experience the hunger that i'm feeling right now or the cold or the pain yeah that's a very primitive and important frustration to work through i think and I think that's been part of the value for me of working with psychedelics, 
whether alone or in guided journeys or in ceremony is is yeah the, i mean maybe this brings it full circle and we can we can wrap this episode the uh, the idea that there is this that no one can ultimately no one can do it for me support yeah. is invaluable and essential so saying no one can do it for me i don't think is quite the same as saying i have to do it alone you can have support and that support can be very can be crucial but that ultimately I'm navigating my own mind and my own body. Yeah. And I'm doing that. Uh, I alone can do that. And I alone can make the decisions as to as to how to navigate that. Yeah. And these truths about the the boundaries of between oneself and another person and the limitations that we have at that point of contact that we're talking about sort of in the, in the context of psychedelic healing and personal suffering, these are when I find myself in a relationship as, as, as I do now for the first time in a while, I'm reminded at how important those lessons are and how, and how relationship is basically one, one extended uh, practice period as it were. Mm-hmm. Or one extended painful yeah. ayahuasca ceremony <laughs> where where you're repeatedly confronting the the joys and frustrations of realizing that like oh there's another person over there and they're not me and I'm not them, but we're connected in this way that is beautiful and terrifying and frustrating and sometimes I wanna run far away and sometimes I wanna like completely merge into this person and that's about that's about all i have to say on that right now because it's a total mind fuck for me these days yeah yeah i I, well i want to talk more about this should we i don't know if we should perhaps save this for another episode is where let's uh let's save that for next time i'll say the one thing uh, on the subject of relationship though another thing that what you said earlier brought to mind was I can't remember if I've shared this here before. Some of the best relationship advice I ever got was last time I found myself in a serious relationship. I was really, uh, neurosing about, is this the right partner for me? And it, it, I was talking to a friend about this and he was like, it's your movie, man. No one's really watching. And it was so relieving to just be reminded that like no one really cares about you or your life or your relationship. They just want you to be happy. It kind of goes back to that panel of judges concern mm-hmm. I was talking about before. Like no one's really watching. You're res- just, just do what makes you happy. Be yeah. a good person, but do what makes you happy. And, uh, and no, no one really cares who you partner with. No one really cares what you do. They just want you to be a nice guy and be happy. Right. Yeah, no, we want, and certainly this is a signature of OCD, is wanting to to know, and this relates, I think, to what you were saying earlier about, you know, knowing that you're optimizing your day and your time. Yeah, there's this desire to know that that we're doing things right. Yeah. And f- first of all, the whole concept of there being, you know, an absolute objective right is is fairly absurd but even if the who, who's the arbor of that who's the judge and then even if there was yeah they're not they're not watching us right now no one's no. the shaman's not the shaman's not looking so are, 
Are you familiar with the stoic philosophical practice of contemplating the imminence of your mortality? I not specifically. <laughs> I mean, I say not specifically because I, I the, the phrase, yes, I, I'm somewhat familiar with stoicism and I know <laughs> that a, a, a rude idea is you're going to die. But yeah, I've been thinking, I saw, I got, I got, I saw an ad for this calendar that is, it's 52 little boxes across and 80 rows down. And you, you fill out every week of your life that has been lived. And then assuming you live for 80 years, you get uh, this every week. You just like circle a little box and march one week closer <laughs> to your closer death. To death. I've been th- I've, I'm thinking about getting it. I think it could be useful for me to have this daily reminder that it's going to end not that soon. So I think it but would have that the, long. Yeah, not that. Yeah, not that long. Um, I think that would have a, I, I think that could have a uniquely soothing effect for me that maybe we'll get into on the next one, sort of why I think that might be helpful for me to contemplate. A- absolutely. Well, I mean, I, it can kind of take some of the importance out of things. It can, yeah. it can add importance in the sense of, yeah, you have limited time and your choices matter in the context of your life, even if they don't in the grand scheme of things. And I think they do matter in the grand scheme of things, but also, yeah, in, I mean, so much I think of this with OCD often where it's like, oh, that thing that seemed just like this huge, huge crisis that I had to figure out. Two days later, I barely remember what it is. Yeah, yeah. Time marches onward. But yeah. Well, maybe, maybe we've used up enough of that, that precious life energy <laughs> for one session. Right, yeah, yeah, well good talking man and uh yeah and there's i think there's a lot of personal stuff we didn't get to from both of our ends but we will uh we'll hit that next time yeah we'll hit it next time much love dude much love take care